Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bueri, and as always, I'm with avid disaster cyclist, Dr. Lucy Jones. In each episode, we thank our supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because with your support, we can keep having it here week after week. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. And now, let's get to it. Disaster specialists, that's the emergency managers, the city resilience officers, first responders, talk about the emergency management cycle or the disaster cycle. It's fairly simple. It literally is like a wheel. One thing flows to the next, and it's preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation. Four simple components to the disaster cycle. And if we're ever going to get out of this cycle, it's got to be something for more than emergency managers. See, they think about this as inevitable. And that is an important concept that many people don't have. That next disaster is coming. Just because we don't know when doesn't mean it won't happen. And part of this idea of the cycle that you recover from a disaster and you get ready for the next one always implies the next one coming. Something emergency managers get, but too many people don't. And unless we acknowledge that we're in it, we'll never get out of it. Okay, so in order to get out of it, we need to get into it. In order to get into it, we need to know what it is. So let's take each component of the cycle. And first, let's look at disaster preparedness, right? This is the idea of getting ready for what might be coming. It's putting together plans, putting together kits. It's meeting your neighbors so that you know who has what skills or resources in their homes. It might even mean signing up for a CERT class, a community emergency response team class, in order to get more skills so you're ready for what's next. I like to think of preparedness as sort of like the first step in admitting that you have a problem, but you're still working from the premise that the disaster is inevitable. There's going to be all of these horrible things, and I need to make sure that I'm ready to protect my family because I can't stop the disaster. Sort of a little bit of fatalism. And so after we've stored all that water and all that food because of something that's going to come, it comes, right? And that's where we have the next step, which is response. So we've prepared, the disaster happens, and then you respond. Right. And disaster response, any action that's taken during or immediately following an emergency. I mean, think about digging people out of down buildings or rescuing them for the floodwaters, stopping the fires. And it's where we have all the attention. When that disaster happens, we all want to watch it on the news. It's where funders want to step in. They get a bigger psychological benefit in the philanthropies if they've helped these people that are suffering, clearly not their own fault. I think that's a factor in how people see this. And so we've discovered we're willing to spend much more money on response than on prevention. And ideally, when you go in and do this, disaster response involves putting already established disaster preparedness plans into motion. And hopefully you've got those. Maybe you do or maybe you don't. And I think it's really indicative when you look at the news and we do a lot of work with the news after an earthquake, for instance, and they're always looking for that image that sort of shows what happened, what's the damage and response is so closely tied to the damage, but that's not where really the work is done. In fact, it really comes in the next step and that's the recovery lasts much longer. It's past that moment of urgent response and it's the time to come back, to build back. 
Recovery is the time when the funders start getting less interested. It's getting boring. It's already been news for a long time. It's sort of like a year and a half into the pandemic and how many thousands of people are dying every day doesn't even become news anymore. That's sort of what's going on with recovery. And yet when we've done our scientific studies of what happens in a disaster, we always see that the speed of recovery is the biggest factor in how much actually gets lost. Business disruption, because you haven't been able to get your water systems repaired, is a huge loss in all of the different disasters that we've studied. And then sometimes, you know, you'll even see the possibility of a long-term depression to the region because they weren't able to get back quickly. What helps you get back quickly? Actually, this is probably the most important aspect of response to me in some ways is because a good response makes recovery quicker if you've addressed the really big issues. But also a good recovery should be making us less vulnerable to future risk. This is where we get the idea that we actually, with science, know what disasters are coming and we need to think about what we do about them. And at least when you're in the recovery period, people are still remembering that those disasters are part of their community. Exactly. And that sort of leads us into this next phase. And this next phase both overlaps the previous one, the recovery, and the next one, preparedness. Remember, it's a cycle. It keeps going in a circle. And that phase is mitigation. It may be considered the most important in many ways. I absolutely think it's the most important thing that we can do. Disaster mitigation is preventing that disaster from happening or minimizing the negative effects. I mean, this is where we build a better building. And you know, it's right after an earthquake, after we've seen the problems that we can get the building codes to change and get us into this place. It's also things like buying people out of floodplains. Again, it's easier to convince somebody not to rebuild in the floodplain because they've just gone through recovery than it is to move them out without the disaster at all. And here's where you start seeing that recovery and mitigation really should be the same thing, or, or one should lead into the other. And it's that handling the mitigation really well that's gonna make the next disaster smaller. Mitigation makes so much sense. It's not even just phased in, it should be like essential component to the recovery. You can't do recovery without doing mitigation. It's the hardest part of the cycle to get attention on. So it really needs to permeate almost all the other portions. About 30 years ago, the leadership at FEMA recognized this and they put in a requirement that when money is spent on response and recovery, that 15% has to go to mitigating against the next disaster. And that has helped change the attitude, at least among many city managers, if they know about it. I'm depressed at how often FEMA mitigation dollars don't get used because people aren't aware that they could be applying for that. There are several things that go into this. One of them is that good mitigation means that you have prevented a disaster. And how do you talk about the losses that didn't happen? When you see that a, a building didn't fall down in an earthquake, an engineer can come in and figure out that actually it received high shaking and this was a really well-designed building. But for other people, they just think, oh, well, maybe it just didn't happen there. Or it just Who knows where the earthquake damage is going to happen? We had one time that we were really able to demonstrate what didn't happen. 
And that was in Alaska when they built the Alaska pipeline to bring the crew down to the ports. And it had to cross the Denali Fault. That's a big fault like the San Andreas that had the potential for really big earthquakes. And back in the 70s, when they were building the pipeline, they were able to insist that the pipeline had to be built in such a way that it wouldn't break when the fault moved. And so they actually built a series of sliders and laid the pipeline down on it with a lot of bends back and forth. So there was a lot of flex. They designed it so the fault could move 20 feet and not break the pipeline. And they said the fault was somewhere within a kilometer long section of the pipe. They weren't sure exactly. They couldn't see it at the surface. That earthquake actually happened in 2002. The fault moved at the second to the last slider. It moved 18 feet and they didn't break. So we were able to say, look at this. There's a huge ecological catastrophe that did not happen because we did this little bit of preparedness ahead of time. But you know, most of the time we don't have that option to come in and show that it's there. And I think it's really important to remember how cost-effective mitigation is. It really does make financial sense. Yeah, there's a great report that's just come out from the National Institute of Building Safety that shows that for every dollar spent on mitigation, as a society, we're saving $6 in the long run from all of those losses that didn't happen. We've just somehow got to get the attention onto that mitigation place because it's a lot easier to get your money up front after you've had the disaster. So Lucy, we're never going to be able to break the disaster cycle, are we? I mean, it's always going to be there. It's a cycle. It can't really break it. Yeah, it's going to be there, but we can change how big they are. I sort of think of this like a working parent, that if you say, I'm sure my kids are always healthy and they're always going to have daycare and I can go off and get all of this work done, you're not going to make it. You're going to be surprised when your kid goes and gets sick. Well, kids getting sick happens often enough, right? That you probably have some backup plans for that. And essentially, we have to do the same thing with the earthquakes and floods and all of these other disasters. The hazard will always be there. The hazard's inevitable, but the disaster is not. And we may not be able to break the cycle because there'll always be another earthquake or flood, but we can make it smaller and more focused on mitigation and preparedness so that we don't have such need for response and recovery. Well, let's leave it there for now. Until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.